Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Two Dudes Doing Trivia. I'm Daniel. And I'm Will. This is a very, very, very special episode for us. We've got listener-submitted questions. It's been a long time that we've been trying to do this, so we're finally going to have some fun doing some listener-submitted. Um, I will just say we've got tons of inputs, tons of questions, so they didn't all make it into this episode. But, uh, you know, keep an ear out. Maybe you'll hear more questions coming up in the future, whether through little mini games or just here and there. Just, uh, yeah, pretty happy with the turnout. Yeah, so right off the top, thanks to everybody that submitted questions, especially Barry and Cammy in Jersey. But everyone that submitted questions, very appreciated. It makes our life easier because this episode, we hardly had to write anything. <laughs> so yeah, I guess we'll just, uh, it'll just be sort of casual quizzing and uh, we'll ask them one at a time. Uh, I think we won't tell the listeners who submitted each question. I think it leaves for a bit more mysteriousness and, uh, you know, people won't get docs that way. Perfect. Yeah, so... We had, like like you said, we had, uh, I don't know, I had a number of different questions. I've cut it down to eight, and I think that's what we agreed upon before the episode started. Yeah, I also had a number that was greater than eight. I also cut it to eight. Yep, perfect. So don't be offended if your question didn't make this round. It may pop up later in a regular episode of Two Dudes Doing Trivia, and then we'll just take credit for writing it. So uh, thanks for ghostwriting. <laughs> All right, let's get started. First question. Created in 1974 by the Japanese merchandising company Sanrio, what is the name of the cartoon character commonly mistaken as a cat? Is that uh, Hello Kitty? That is Hello Kitty. <laughs> one for one from the listener submitted. Yeah, apparently Hello Kitty, not a cat. Uh, the company Sanrio says that Hello Kitty is a girl, uh, she, although she displays feline characteristics like pointed ears, whiskers, and a tail. Okay, okay. Sanrio, come on. I was about to say, now I'm only just confused, so now... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got one for you. Um, this isn't, I have to point this out. This is an OG listener submitted question from like season one or two, but I've had it in waiting for this kind of episode. So, so happy we finally get to have this one out there. A very good friend of ours wants to ask you, which NHL player has his name on the Stanley Cup five times spelled differently each time? Oh, I know who asked this question. That's a good question. <laughs> hmm. And I have some bonus uh, extra information, but I think I was informed that this information would just give it away, I think. Well, I am just trying to think of hard to spell names. I'm going to go with like uh, Joe Newendike. That is not correct. Did you want to hear my bonus? Yeah, give me some give bonus answer? info. So they are a seven-time Vezina Trophy winner. Oh, it's a goaltender. Um goaltender with a tough to spell name seven time they're on the stanley cup five times mm -hmm. i mean it's probably super obvious and i'm just missing we're uh for the listeners information we're recording this uh early in the morning uh for me <laughs> oh, yeah, super early <laughs> <laughs> um i i don't know so i'll give you the answer so they were a hab um okay I will tell you, it's not someone with a name that's difficult to spell. It's Jacques Plant. Oh, uh, that was, a, uh, I actually had come up with that, but I was like, who could misspell Plant? That's right. Yeah. So they have it spelled on the Stanley Cup, J. Plant, Jacques Plant the right way, Jacques J.A.C. Plant, Jacques J.A.C.Q. Plant, oh, and Jacques J.A.Q.U.E.S. Plant. Mais c'était un truc oh man like okay. how did that happen you know very good question thanks for that one Figman. 
<laughs> All right. Well, it looks like you're going to beat me. Um, okay. Your second question. Found at the center of its eponymous neighborhood, this Manhattan landmark, formerly known as the Fuller Building, sits on a triangular block bounded by Fifth Avenue, Broadway, and East 22nd Street. I think this is Tribeca. It is not Tribeca. No! So Tribeca is in a Manhattan neighborhood, so I see where that guess comes from. Um, the Flatiron Building is in the Flatiron District. And the building itself, it kind of looks like a wedge of pie because of the way those blocks come together. And the building is built right into the like acute angled corner. And it's if you can picture a famous building in New York City that looks like it, has, it comes to a point, it's a really interesting looking building. And uh, yeah, it looks like a flat iron that you'd see, I guess, on like a grill, like that you put on top of a something that you're frying. I'm not sure exactly, to be totally honest, but um, okay. yeah, it's a famous building. And uh, I guess the listeners know how much you love architecture. It's true. I can't wait to look that one up too. All right. In the category of music, Festfolktet, meaning party people, was an early name for what band? Their first record to chart in the U.S. was called People Need Love, which they recorded under the name Bjorn and Benny, Anietta and Annie Freed. Um, can, okay, can you just say the names one more time? Yep, so the names of the people, they recorded the song People Need Love under the name Bjorn and Benny, Anietta and Annie Freed. Like Bjorn, Bjorn Emerson, and Benny. Benny, so that's two Bs, and then two A names, and if I rearrange those, I get ABBA. You get ABBA. <laughs> yeah, I knew I knew ABBA was um, um, sort of an acronym of the names of the people in it, and I, it is uh, your prerogative to give me questions like that that uh, switch up the letter orders. <laughs> Thinking back to little... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's right, that's right, which was just recently. Um, so I just wanted to say one little thing about ABBA. So they had their a hit song called Ring Ring, and they only came third place in a Swedish song competition. Therefore, they were not able to perform Ring Ring at Eurovision that year, um, despite that song becoming a hit in Europe and South Africa. And the name ABBA comes from Stieg Andersson, which is their producer. Um, he was tired of calling them Bjorn and Benny, and yet in any free, so he kept saying ABBA, which was an inside joke among the five of them, because ABBA is a well-known Swedish fish canning company. Oh. And then all of a sudden they thought, no one outside of Sweden is going to know ABBA Fish Canning Company, right? Let's just call ourselves ABBA. There you go. Interesting. I wonder if it's related to their, if they make that product that's like pickled herring or whatever, and if you open a jar of it, you can smell it three blocks away. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> all right. I got another one for you here. Uh, also in the world of music, Giuseppe Verdi wrote this opera that includes the famous duet and I apologize for everyone for what I'm about to say, because it's going to be butchered. <clears throat> Libiamo no lieti calisi, which translates to Let's Drink from the Joyous Cups, mm -hmm. sung by courtesan Violetta and bourgeois poet Alfredo Germont, or Germont, or Hermont. The opera <laughs> served as inspiration for both Pretty Woman and Moulin Rouge. What is this opera? Pretty Woman and Moulin Rouge. Whoa, that kind of threw me a little bit. Um, so I know the song well. Um, it is. So I was pretty sure that I knew where that song was from. What are the names of the people again? Alfredo and uh, Violetta? Alfredo, Alfredo Germont or Germont uh, was a bourgeois poet that was sung by and, and courtesan Violetta. She seems to be a mononymous person like Madonna. So I'm pretty sure this is called La Traviata. The correct answer is 
La Traviata. Well done. Woo, the fallen woman. <laughs> yep. So I don't really have any like further information on that one, but if you could tell us about La Traviata, that'd be great. I mean, you've already sung it, so what more could you want? <laughs> yeah, that song uh, has a special name. It's called a Brindisi, which is a drinking song, which is a... I think Brindy, Brindisi maybe, um, is one of the, a small city, a small port city on the west coast of Italy. Uh, and that's where that gets that name, Brindisi. So there's Brindisi's and other operas, but that's a specific song about drinking and partying and whatever. And it's like a well-known duet. Um, yeah, that story is about a woman who, I don't know, falls. I think she gets tuberculosis or leukemia or something. I can't quite remember, to be honest, but just I don't remember that most popular opera. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's the weird part. That's why I was like, Pretty Woman and Moulin Rouge. I was like, hmm. I guess because she's a courtesan. But anyways, yeah. So there's a little bit of opera for you guys. Great. Um, so I have an art question for you. Given your uh, recentish uh, focus on art, what word from French refers to a watercolor paint consisting of natural pigment, water, and a, a binding agent such as gum arabic? This kind of mixture results in a vivid, opaque color, and one of its popular uses is the paint in backgrounds of Studio Ghibli films such as Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro. It's a word from French. I don't know that I've come across this in my limited art studying. I'm just going to say it becomes like a fondant or a fondant. Okay, interesting guess. Um, I know where you're going from, obviously, fondant being the like food thing. This is called a gouache. Have Ooh, you heard that word? I have not heard that word. Yeah, uh, so it just makes this kind of very vivid, very opaque colors, and yes, yeah, Studio Ghibli films use it. And Sweet. like, it's there are lots of tons of art, obviously, but yeah, that's just uh, a good one to remember. Watercolor paint, opaque and vivid colors, pigment water binding agent, and sometimes something inert, but I don't understand why that needed to be said, because it's inert. But hey, well, I'm no artist or scientist. So I guessed fondant or fondant because, like you said, it's the what many people mistake for icing in baking, yes. but it's thicker. And I kind of thought, oh, it's all, it goes on the background. And in Spanish, the fondo is the background. And I was like, maybe that's etymologically related. So I thought the fondant yeah, was a good stab. I think it was a good stab too. Alrighty, I've got a sports question for you. Yes, love sports. You know me. Towering over most of us at six foot nine inches tall, this actor and mountain of a man has won countless strongman competitions, including the title of World's Strongest Man in 2018. He was inducted into the International Sports Hall of Fame in March 2023, and shortly thereafter, on April 15th, tore his pectoral muscle during a powerlifting meet while attempting to bench press 556 pounds. And then I was given a note, absolutely under no circumstances, Google that, because apparently it is gruesome. Who's okay. this person? So I, I, I'll back into this one because I think it's funny. So recently, I think 2023, the world's strongest man, uh, the competition was held and it is the person who won is Barry Ontario. Pretty wow. weird. Um, so that was 2023. So 2022 and 2021, it was, I think his name was Tom Stoltman from uh, the UK. And I think oh, I have the only other one I can name with any amount of certainty and any amount of recency, is a Polish man named Mariusz Pujanowski. So I'm going with that. What an excellent guess. Unfortunately, it is not correct. Damn it. This is, uh, I'm guessing, an Icelandic person, but somewhere in the greater Scandinavia region anyway. Hafthor Bjornsson is this person's mm. name. I don't know if you've heard of this person. I certainly had not. 
Yeah, I've heard of him. I, I guess Marius just because he uh, won six, seven times in a row. Like he's the r- record holder for holding the title the longest. But mm, wow. yeah, that's uh, definitely not going to Google his pectoral. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I used to watch some of those uh, World Strongest Man competitions when I was younger, and uh, I just noticed that like a lot of them are from uh, sort of Sweden, Norway uh, mm-hmm. area. Like the the Scandinavians are just like really strong people i guess <laughs> just naturally strong and I, i'll always remember the one famous guy his name is magnus ver magnuson and i was like nice they only have like three names there <laughs> yeah i know that was like a <laughs> way back in the day when i was getting into crossfit i think the first female crossfit winner her name was annie thor's annie thor's daughter and uh yeah i just thought so i guess everybody's named after some sort of uh god of norse mythology like there's thor's daughter there's siegfried's daughter there's all these people all these daughters Yeah, don't call me daughter. (laughs) Okay, my fourth question for you is, name the woman behind the meme, this does not spark joy. She's known for her popular cleaning methods involving mindfulness and introspection, as explained in her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Awesome. Um, so I didn't I didn't watch any of these episodes, but I sort of absorbed it through osmosis because my partner watched all of them and you can't escape it in a house this small. Um... (laughs) So my trivia answer is going to be Kondo, and if I had to, I think her name is Marie Kondo. It's Marie Kondo. Awesome. That's yep. Yeah, we uh, do a lot of uh, figuring out if something sparks joy in this house and then kick it to the curb. <laughs> Pretty minimalist situation, I guess. Okay, great. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what am I on? Five? This is number five for you? Yeah, you got it. This game possibly originated during the Edo period in Japan as Menko, played with clay discs decorated with images of ninja and samurai. The 1990s revival was played with round illustrated cardboard pieces where players tried to capture discs by flipping them over with a slammer. In this version, game pieces were found under juice caps sold in Hawaii, and the popular name for it comes from an acronym made out of the only three available juice flavors. Oh man, that is such a cool question. Okay, so... You had me in the first half, not going to lie. I thought we were talking about shogi, which is the che- the analog of chess in Japan. Then I thought we were talking about go, but I thought for sure that it was not a Japanese invention. And then you said the thing about the three flavors, which I'm going to have to guess is peach, orange, and grape. So is this what pogs are? Uh, you got one of the three flavors, but you got the game correct. It is absolutely <laughs> pogs. It's passion fruit, orange, and guava. Oh, yeah. Okay. If it's coming from Japan, then yeah, it's not going to be, well, could be. Well, those flavors yeah, like would be from Hawaii. Guava. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Cool, yeah, that's Did you play Pogs growing up? I had Pogs growing up, yeah. Yeah, we did. (laughs) It was more of a collector's item for me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, We had a bunch of Pogs in our house, but uh, I think this is probably a uniquely Canadian thing, but my favorite Pogs were the ones that had NHL hockey players on them. (laughs) I think I was much more of like the Raven mindset. I was just like, ooh, shiny, ooh, another holographic (laughs) one. (laughs) Okay, uh, in the sports world for you, a very simple question. Tanya Harding was the first American woman to land what specific jump in competition? Um, okay, so I actually just listened to a podcast on various figure skating and ice dancing um, sort of scandals. So you can imagine Tanya Harding showed up yep. <laughs> quite frequently. <laughs> um, I'm going to say it was a quad. It was not a quad, it was a triple Oh, she was the first axle. first triple axle, okay. That's right. Um, can you tell me anything about a triple axle? Or any axle for that matter? Um, okay, I'm going to say that an axle is when you are skating forwards and you land 
backwards. How did you know that it was uh, the only forward-facing jump? Uh, because, like, I I watched a lot of figure skating every four years growing up. My mom loves figure skating, so the Olympics were like, okay, we got to watch this. Uh, we were big fans of Elvis Stoiko, the Canadian, fans mm-hmm. of... Um, the Canadian couple that I can't, uh, Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue. In fact, a couple of years ago, a mutual friend of ours and I went to see them do a show to put on a skating show. Oh, cool. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I know lots of peripheral things about uh, ice skating. Can you name me the other two jumps? Uh, there's a sal cow. That's right. And a uh, uh, toe. I can't think of the third one off the top of my head, but I'm sure I could. It's named after an Austrian skater. It is the Lutz. Oh, the Lutz, of course. Yeah. Um, and I don't understand. Someone had already explained to me the difference between a Lutz and a sal cow. One of them is about landing or starting on the inside or outside edge of the foot. And then the other one is the other one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's all we need to know. Yeah. Perfect. But actually, yeah, forward facing, three and a half turns for triple. Pretty cool. Yeah, and I think in uh, in like the men's competitions at the highest level, like if you don't do a number of quadruples, then you just can't win because your your set isn't difficult enough to reach the top score. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I think in pairs, men can like treat women like a Beyblade. They like let her rip, and they can do like quads <laughs> or <of> quintuples. <laughs> They can do quads or quints or something. They're just like flying through the air. They just Beyblade them across the ice, you know? <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Um, you have no more sports questions left. You'll be happy to know. Okay. A species of green algae called Chlamydomonas nivalis is known to turn snow what color? Can you say the word again? Chlamydomonas? Chlamydomonas nivalis. Chlamydomonas nivalis. It looks like it has the same root word as chlamydia. That's where I was going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Is known to turn snow a color? Mm-hmm. What? Okay, let's go with green. It is red. So this algae, it has green chlorophyll in it, but it also has a secondary carotenoid pigment that turns the snow red. And if you want to Google what that looks like, Google watermelon snow. And it's a really interesting looking phenomenon that I had not heard of before. I've never heard of that. That's really cool. Okay, cool. I've got one for you. So this is one that is uh, tapping into your engineering background. So good luck. And for uh, posterity, I was unable to confirm this because I am no scientist. In terms of four-wheeled vehicles, what can be measured by taking the product of the number of wheels the total surface contact area between all wheels on the ground and the pressure of each tire. And so just to be as accurate as possible, because I know a lot of engineers listen to the show, the surface area would be in square inches and the pressure is PSI. So we're taking the product of the number of wheels, the pressure on the wheels and the pressure in each wheel and the total surface area of the contact between the tires and the ground. I'm going to go with, I'm really pulling from like my studies. Uh, there's a, there's a thing called rim pull and I'm going to guess that. So we're going to Google that one quickly. Wow. So having Googled rim pull, that is definitely correct. Was not expecting that. So rim pull based on easycalculation.com's definition. Rim pull effort is the amount of force exerted at the point where the vehicle touches the road surface. This force is expressed in terms of pounds. That's got to be the correct answer because what I was looking for was the weight. So it's going to be the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I don't even know if that's right or not. I just like I know when you're when you're designing a mine or you're like optimizing haul trucks and things like that, um, you need to do rim pull calculations to make sure that your truck can haul that much material up a hill. So anyway, I, interesting question. I'd have to really think about the pressure in each tire, the surface area. I mean, it's probably just a calculation if the the units all work out and it's a it's in a weight, it's in kilograms or pounds or something. In pounds, yeah. I think it's like the formula. I think is W equals APN. But I think the I think maybe the point is if the surface area is in square inches and the pressure is in pounds per square inch, you're kind of left with after like whatever that's called, cross multiplying pounds as the. Um, as the unit of measure or something. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. That's just my that's my instinct. I don't know. I'm no scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about rim pull in about ten years, to be honest. Back to question seven for you. American soldiers in the Vietnam War often wore a specific playing card for luck. What card was it? Hmm. No, I think I know where this comes from. <laughs> I think I knew who submitted this one. A specific playing card. Um. Let's go with. As in one specific of the 54 potential cards in a standard playing card deck? Nobody in their right mind includes jokers when saying that number. Well, I don't know. That's the problem. Is if I, That's why I gave you the 54. Okay, so it's a 52. So let's go for a one-eyed jack. It is the Ace of Spades. Ace of Spades? Yeah. What? So apparently in the Vietnam War, it was so popular or common for American soldiers to wear Aces of Spades that some card companies were just making entire decks of only aces of spades to send to the war effort <laughs> and then yeah, apparently yeah the 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 vietnamese soldiers would consider it like bad luck if they came across one so they were just kind of like strewing aces of spades everywhere in the war wow. what an interesting little piece of propaganda mm-hmm. back into the art world name the painting technique that employs strong light and dark contrasts to bring depth and drama to works it came into wide use during the Baroque period and is exemplified by Caravaggio's The Calling of St. Matthew and John Tileschi's Judith Slang Holofernes. Wow, you ask an art question, I actually know both paintings that are referenced in it? That's crazy. <laughs> um, so I believe, this might have actually have come up in our podcast uh, four I seasons think so. ago, so I think oh. you're looking for Chiaroscuro. It sure is. Yeah, that's um, a classic painting technique. But I can't technique. remember. There's like a there's like a style of art that mm-hmm. chiaroscuro is so prevalent in, but I can't remember what that word is. But I'm sure tenebrism. Yeah, tenebrism, and I'm not sure what the difference is. Like tenebrism is just a style of art that uses chiaroscuro, but chiaroscuro is used in many different types of art, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think it's a question of metonymy. Yeah, that chiaroscuro is the tenebrism tenebrism. Tenebrism tends to have chiaroscuro, but chiaroscuro is not necessarily just tenebrism. Got it. Um, can you name me any of the other classic kind of high Italian Renaissance Baroque era techniques? There's there's four of them, and chiaroscuro is one of them. Oh, um, impasto? Uh, so that is a paint applying technique, not a color yeah. and, yeah. It was just an Italian word related to <laughs> That just came name. to mind right away. <laughs> uh, I probably have heard of them. I can't come up with them, though. So uh, I'll just go through them quickly just for fun. So Mona Lisa has a famous one called Sfumato. Have you heard of that Oh, one? yeah. It comes from the Italian word for fog. Yeah. So just kind of using blurriness or out of focus uh, shading to give the illusion of depth. There's the classic use a different color instead of just shading. So if you have yellow, you can only go so dark with yellow. So to give a shadow in a yellow color, you might use red or orange. That's called cangiante, uh, which means to change, like literally change oh, the yeah. color. And finally, the marriage between chiaroscuro and sfumato is shading without so much smokiness, and it's called unione, which means the union between chiaroscuro and sfumato, more or less. Oh, I like that. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I, I watched uh, a few videos on the Mona Lisa, and they talk about Sfumato a lot, and like how there's you know literally thousands of layers of paint on that painting that are just like razor thin layers that get smudged and things like that. All right, one final question for you. These have been great. Thank you again, listeners. Uh, this one is a simple question. It's a movie question. What movie had the famous tagline, In space, no one can hear you scream. Oh, boy. Uh, so I've got two uh, two candidates, two candidate moves here. 2001 A Space Odyssey or Alien? Alien? 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, boy. Um, I thought you were going to say something. Another tagline? I just thought it was coming up. I don't know why, but I just read this movie tagline recently. I'll tell you after. Okay. It is uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. In space, no one can hear you scream in 1979 Sigourney Weaver's career-launching film, Alien. Damn it. It's 50-50 on that. Yeah, that would make more sense. Like, 2001 A Space Odyssey is... Half of the movie has nothing to do with the guys in space. Like, well, sorry, it's all about that. But yeah, okay, fine, fine, fine. Well, you didn't like get that. the point there. I did not get the point. Um, the the tagline I thought you were talking about, which has nothing to do with anything, but I was just reading about this recently, is Garbo Talks. Have you heard of that one? Um, no. So yeah, so Garbo Talks was the first talkie in which Greta Garbo appeared. It was the name. This is the movie Anna Christie, which is based on the Eugene O'Neill play. And it was tagline, yeah, Garbo Talks, because it was her first talkie. And her first line, which is famous, is, give me a whiskey, ginger ale on the side, and don't be stingy, baby. That's funny. um, It's funny that you didn't go in that direction. (laughs) Well, I mean, I didn't write the questions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's funny. Um, Okay, so I've got my final question for you. And mine is not a short one. It's a long one, but it's very interesting, and I love it. So in 2002, many years ago, Two former minority owners of the Montreal Expos filed charges against Commissioner Bud Selig, Selig. Selig sure, and former Expos owner Jeffrey Loria, claiming they deliberately conspired to devalue the team for personal benefit under what federal law? If they had been found guilty under this law, they'd have joined the likes of the Gambino crime family and the Key West Police Department. Okay, so under U.S. federal law? Interesting that it's in Montreal. Um, yeah, no, this law exists in Canada. Yeah, that makes does sense. it? Hmm. Because my first thought was like RICO, which is like the, how they catch gangsters being gangsters. Um, okay, but what makes you think it's not that then? Okay, my guess is RICO. And that would be right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sick. Uh, yeah, RICO standing for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations. Yeah, pretty cut and dry there. And you know what? I'm so glad that we both knew what sport we were talking about to start. no that was great once again uh thanks uh everybody for sending your questions in that's uh that was really fun hopefully we can do that uh maybe every season yeah we can do it every season we can do it every episode we can just have the most fun thanks everybody and we hope to have more so please do send us more yeah i mean if we did it every episode then we don't barely have to do any work on this thing anymore sweet (laughs) thank you so much for listening everyone tune in next week for Eight casual quizzing questions. Ooh, what a tongue twister on Daniel's favorite category of sport. We're, we'll be sports in. You'll be sports in. Everyone's going to be here doing the sports. It's going to be a good one. Bye. <laughs>